Let us pray. God, our Father, uh, it has indeed been a, a real thrill and a real delight to have had these weeks where we've had the exposure to this wisdom literature. And what a lot we have to learn, our Father, uh, but how thrilling it is to find right at the heart of the scriptures, the tree of life figuring so centrally. And, and it is life in its fullness that we, we want to learn to live and we want to learn to live wisely. And so we'd ask, Father, that you would help David again this evening, that you would give to him that clarity of thought, that freshness after what will have been for him a full and demanding day. May he be refreshed and may he minister in such a way that we too are refreshed, uh, illumined, instructed, challenged and stimulated. Grant us insight and understanding, Father, please, by your spirit as we ask for your blessing upon our time this evening, in Jesus' name. Amen. And without further ado, I will hand over to you, David. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Jerry. And thank you, everybody, again. Um, it, it's a very strange experience. As soon as I started speaking there, the only person I can see on my screen is myself, and I take up the whole of the uh, screens. It's very strange to think that there are 37 other screens and lots of people watching, but I know you're there. And um, I'm really glad to be with you again for an evening and to have another chance to look at wisdom literature with you. Like Jerry said, this is the last, um, tonight is the last evening looking at Ecclesiastes. So um, if you put up the, uh, if you can put up the title pages, uh, like Jerry uh, helpfully prayed there, this is all about the tree of life, learning to live from Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs and Job. And then the next slide shows where we've got to tonight. Uh, we're on week five. We've covered wisdom, perspective, time, death, and tonight is life. So, bad news last week, good news this week, hopefully at least. Hopefully tonight is some, uh, some relief in the darkness of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you put up the next one as well, please, Jerry. This is, this is really um, the payoff session, I think, in the... Or, if you can believe it, after five sessions, four sessions, in a way, all I've been trying to do is build a framework that is a very unusual framework. It's been odd, hasn't it? Strange for us to get our head around it. But I've been trying to build an unusual framework to, to show us that Ecclesiastes has a very unusual message built on that framework. And the framework, the scaffolding, if you like, is that death is coming. Death is certain. Death is coming to all of us. Scaffolding is never the main thing, isn't it? You're meant to take scaffolding down and then see the beauty of the building behind it or that's been constructed. Ecclesiastes is like that. It builds the scaffolding of death to say that the most important thing is life and living a certain way. So Ecclesiastes has an invitation and it's an invitation to live. It's not an invitation to die. Very important to get that right in a, in a book that is ha, has so much about death in it, it it's an invitation to learn to live by preparing to die and it's quite it's quite different all ecclesiastes does is says death is coming and because death is coming because it is certain how then should we live now last week i had death is a surgeon it operates on our hearts it shows us the kind of things we're living for death is a preacher tells us that this will be our destiny one day and so we need to prepare for it but the final thing is the third point that i didn't get to last week because it's really about life death is also actually an artist now even if you just look at the heading on the screen there learn to live by preparing to die that's my kind of summary of the message of ecclesiastes if i had to put it in a nutshell that's the phrase and it, you, you can see the artistry in that kind of phrase can't you if death is coming then let's work backwards from that into how we should live. So imagine, it's a bit like imagining that death is standing there like an artist and he has a blank canvas in front of him. And what is death going to paint? He doesn't actually want to paint death himself. He's saying to us that because I'm here and because I'm real, because you're going to meet me one day, here's the blank canvas in front of you. What, what are you going to do with the life that you have and the message of the book is that only by accepting that that thing, that awful thing that we spend most of our lives 
uh, unaware of when you're young, fighting against when you're in your midlife crisis, uh, angry and upset about and regretful about as you reach older age, if we can learn to, to absorb that reality of death much earlier, much more clear-eyed, then actually the way that we live uh, is different. So the message of the book is work, work backwards from your death into your life. And I want to try and show you that this evening. I want to try and show you that, that that's really how Ecclesiastes works. So I've got a bit of a tall order to try and cash the check, if you like, of all the stuff that we've done so far all the way through the book. And a, a little, a, it'll be a bit of a whirlwind tour. I want to try and show you how this message about life is stitched into the book all the way through. Before I do that, let me read you um, one of the most beautiful quotations that I came across uh, while I was working on Ecclesiastes. This is from, uh, it's in my book on Ecclesiastes and Destiny um, in the chapter called One Foot in the Grave. Some of you will have, some of you will have seen this already. Sorry, I'm just sipping on my cup of tea. Um, this is by um, a Presbyterian minister from the late 19th century called James Russell Miller. And I, I guess it was like old, older, old-fashioned minister's letters. Some, some of us still do those. Some, some congregations still do those. And certainly when you go back in time, minister's letters were they were probably like the equivalent of books that you get today. They were uh, very long, very involved. Here, here is a beautiful minister's letter that he wrote to his young people in his, in his congregation. It's, a, it's a, a minister's letter called Beautiful Old Age. Uh, this is fairly lengthy. Let me just read this, uh, read this to you. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. It is the barn into which all the sheaves are gathered. It is the sea into which all the rills and rivers of life flow from their springs in the hills and valleys of youth and manhood. We are each in our earlier years building the house in which we shall have to live when we grow old. Now that's like Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Like what we saw in chapter 12. In our earlier years, we are each building the house in which we shall have to live when we grow old. And we, we may make it a prison or a palace. We may make it very beautiful, adorning it with taste, filling it with objects that will minister to our pleasure, comfort and power. We may cover the walls with lovely pictures. We may spread luxurious couches of ease on which to rest. We may lay up in store great supplies of provision upon which to feed in the days of hunger and feebleness. We may gather and pile away large bundles of wood to keep the fires blazing brightly in the long winter days and nights of old age. So you get, you get the image. What he's talking about is not what it's like to be old. It's how do you live while you're young so that one day you will end up living in a palace, not a prison. That's one option to make our house beautiful by the way that we live. Or we may make our house very gloomy. We may hang the chamber walls with horrid pictures, covering them with ghastly spectres that will look down upon us and haunt us, filling our souls with terror when we sit in the gathering darkness of life's nightfall. We may make beds of thorns to rest upon. We may lay up nothing to feed upon in the hunger and craving of declining years. We may have no fuel ready for winter fires. We may plant roses to bloom about our doors and fragrant gardens to pour their perfumes upon us, or we may sow weeds and briars to flaunt themselves in our faces as we sit in our doorways in the gloaming. So some of you, some of you have already been out and tidied up the leaves, the autumn leaves, and you've planted bulbs. And it's all because you know from experience that spring will come. And we've probably never been more desperate for spring, have we, than this year. You, you are preparing the ground literally for the future ahead of you. That's the image that Russell Miller is working at here. Old age, you're going to enter a house and you're building the house now. Here's what he says. All old age is not beautiful. It's true, isn't it? It's not, nothing romantic about old age. All old people are not happy. Some are very wretched with hollow sepulchral, sepulchral, ruts, sepulchral lives. Many an ancient place was built over a dark dungeon. There were the marble walls that shone with dazzling splendor in the sunlight. There were the wide gilded chambers with their magnificent frescoes and their splendid adornments, the gaiety, the music and the revelry. But deep down beneath all this luxurious splendor and dazzling display was the dungeon filled with its unhappy victims. 
And up through the iron gratings came the sad groans and moanings of despair, echoing and reverberating through the gilded halls and sealed chambers. And in this, I see a picture of many an old age. It is possible to live so as to make old age very sad, and then it is possible to live so as to make it very beautiful. The most important practical question is this, how can we so live that when our old age comes, when it comes, it shall be beautiful and happy? Now, I think that the reason I put that in the book at that length, and there's more to it, there's even more, it's a beautiful quotation. I think it just gets, it gets right into the skin of Ecclesiastes. It is possible to live so as to make old age very sad, and it is possible to live so as to make it very beautiful. And so what I want to do tonight is to try and show us the, the way that Ecclesiastes says you can make life beautiful. So two things, if you go to the... Right now. Um, thank you. That's the next one. So the same heading again. Death is an artist. What do I mean by that? He, here is what it means to live. I just want to give you two things this evening. Try and do the first one. It's a much longer one. Try and do that all the way through to break time or I might need a little bit of time after break and then we'll do the second one. And like Jerry said, I'm going to try and leave time for questions. I always promise that. Um, maybe I said that in my, did I tell you that in my elders meetings, I start every week. Every time we meet, I say, I'm going to, we're going to be short tonight and I haven't done it once. Um, so maybe you're in the same boat type. We'll see. I'm going to try and finish with questions. So here's the first, the first thing. Or, or there's two main ways Ecclesiastes says this is what life looks like if you're preparing to die do two things pursue joy and pursue the joy that comes from simple gratitude and number two pursue life and what does that mean it means pursue life in relationship in a way all four of those words are key joy gratitude life relationship what, what does life mean in Ecclesiastes it means those four things and everybody else around us pursues joy and everybody else around us pursues life. But the message of Ecclesiastes is people pursue joy in the kind of ways that end up frustrating and disappointing them. They're trying to build a legacy and a lifelong reputation and they're just gone from the earth before they've even got going. People are trying to pursue life, but they pursue it individualistically. They, they, they think that happiness is found within them somehow, getting things for themselves. And Ecclesiastes message is, no, because of death, if you learn to be joyful in the simple things that God gives you, you will find real joy. And if you pursue life, not in, not in adding to your own life, but in dying to yourself for the sake of other people, that's relationship and that is real life. So quite simple sentences, but there's a lot in them that I'm going to try and, try and show us. So number one, pursue joy and gratitude and if you've got a bible i want you to look at ecclesiastes chapter 11 and i'm going to read this whole chapter and the reason i'm going to read this chapter is because chapter 12 is the famous chapter isn't it in ecclesiastes maybe chapter three there is a time for everything that's one verse that everybody knows from ecclesiastes but i would i would i would bet money that Chapter 12, verse 1 is the next verse that everybody knows in Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And then we get that picture that we looked at about old age being uh, an awful thing, a, a decline. So we have verse 1, because of that, remember. But chapter 11 is the build-up to chapter 12, okay? So before we get death in chapter 12... Chapter 11 has been the springboard into that by saying, because chapter 12 is coming, here is what life looks like. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and let's just read, uh, I'll read it for us. Let's read and enjoy these verses together, and then I'll try and, um, try and explain the point. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. 
As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, just remember the, the translation that we've worked with for the, the, the word vanity, the Hebrew word. Rather than thinking of it as being meaningless or pointless, think of it as being quick fleeting, hard to grasp, hold off. Remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are here one minute and gone the next. They are over in the blink of an eye. Now, if, if you just begin to layer the message here, look at chapter 11 before chapter 12. Before you get to old age being like a decrepit house that is crumbling and falling apart, what does the teacher tell us to do? Verse 8, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Verse 9, here's the key thing. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. So before you end up there, but because you know there is coming, here is what you should do. And I think... We have done a massive disservice to huge swathes of generations of people within, uh, within the church, within Christian, uh, Christian culture, by downplaying the seriousness of the command in verse 9. Okay, verse 9 is a command. It's not, it's not an optional extra. If you've got nothing else on on a Monday morning, everything's looking good. Um, you know, why not rejoice? If you've, if you've done your evangelism, you've read your Bible, um, you've been to church on Sunday. This is a command in the same way that we are told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your enemies as yourself. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not steal. Rejoice, O young man in your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart. If you just put up the next slide, Jerry, here's a, here's a quotation from uh, one commentator, uh, Xiao on Ecclesiastes uh, in the Anchor Doubleday commentary series. Um, really, really excellent quote. Listen to this. Human beings are supposed to enjoy life to the full because that is their divinely assigned portion. And God calls one into account for failure to enjoy. Enjoyment is not only permitted, it is commanded. It is not only an opportunity, it is a divine imperative. That, that, that I think, is an excellent reading of verse 9. Look at the very end of the verse again. So look at the commands. Rejoice. Let your heart cheer you while you're young. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. And know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, that ending of the verse, I don't think it is just a warning to a young person saying, look, rejoice, be cheerful, walk in the ways of your heart, and, and don't forget that there's judgment. In other words, make sure you're doing those things in a morally upright way because there's judgment. That, that could be part of it. But actually, do you see, I think this interpretation is right, the one on your, on your, on your screens. God will hold us to account for failing to enjoy the things he gave us to enjoy. Now, think about it, uh, think about it this way. Christmas Day coming up and a parent gives their child um, Buzz Lightyear. Um, that's the example I give in the book. You know, they've watched Toy Story, they want Buzz Lightyear and they, they give their child Buzz Lightyear and there it is in the box. You know, they come with these wretched plastic tie clips holding it in. It's shiny, it's sparkling, it's beautiful. And Buzz Lightyear is there in front of them. 
they open it on Christmas morning. What would a parent think if the child looked at it and said, that's amazing, and went and put it on their shelf in their bedroom and just looked at it? And then Boxing Day still looked at it. And then a week later, all they've done is look at it. And the parent says to the child, what, you know, I, 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 I bought you this present. I got this for you. The, the whole point of it is to enjoy it, isn't it? And by not enjoying it, what does that say to the parent? Um, it, it's what happens in homes, isn't it? You buy children something and six months later, it's lying broken in a corner. And the lack of enjoyment or the lack of use of the very thing that you gave them to use is offensive. It is, an, it is offensive to a generous uh, to a generous host. I, I remember a situation, one situation I've seen where somebody, somebody gave somebody else a car and the people who gave the car to other people over time had to deal with immense frustration and resentment as they watched the car never be used. This person gladly took the car, thank you very much, sat on the driveway and began to rust, was never used. Now, you know, I don't think they're going to take them to court. They're not knocking on their door. But look at the wording of that verse. Look at the wording of what God will actually do to us with the good things that he's given us to enjoy. Um, th th this, this idea, okay, that joy is commanded is massively neglected. Massively neglected. I want to show you this from a, another part of the Bible. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's great. Thank you. The next slide. Listen to this. This is from God warning his people about what will happen to them in the land. What, what will make things go wrong? Okay. So Moses is preaching a sermon. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. So, so what are these statutes and commandments that we have to keep? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us to pause and look at this. Look at verse 46, uh, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Wh wh why, why should we have been joyful and glad, glad of heart? Because of the abundance of all things. And because I've given you all these things abundantly, and because you did not enjoy them, as you served me joyfully and gladly. Look at look how it's a reversal, verse 48. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies in, it's the opposite of abundance of all things, isn't it? Hunger and thirst, nakedness, lacking everything. In other words, I gave you food, I gave you water, I gave you clothing, I gave you material gifts. You lacked nothing. And because joy was not at the heart of how you lived and loved and served me, actually god sends covenant curses it's a really amazing thing isn't it we think verse 45 all these curses shall come upon you because you did not keep the lord's commandments what are the lord's commandments we go to the ten commandments we go to all the levitical laws we think what god wants from me is moral uprightness and isn't it true that so much of what the Lord Jesus is doing in the Gospels is encountering Phariseeism that thinks all God wants from me is turning up at the right place at the right time, looking the right way. And Jesus is constantly saying, isn't he, to people, yes, but you've forgotten love. You've forgotten love of the weak, the outcast, the poor. You've forgotten love of the sinner. And all of that you've forgotten because you've forgotten love for God first. And love for God first will overflow in joy and gladness of heart. Now, here's an amazing thing, okay? Um, when you spot, people have spotted that joy 
living life to the full with gladness and gratitude for the things that God has given. Some people have spotted that this is really, really significant. Here's the next quote on the screen. Uh, this is by a man called uh, Douglas Jones. Actually, sorry, just, just go back a second, Jerry. Uh, just take that off. And the reason to ask you to take that off is just if you, you wouldn't hear me, you'd be reading the words on the screen. Um, this man, Douglas Jones, he, he says, um, why do Christian cultures fail? Okay. What, why do churches go bad? Why do Christian movements go bad? They start off orthodox and they become liberal or they just die out. Mission organizations start really dynamic and they fossilize. Every movement has a dynamic start and eventually it adds bureaucracy and a hundred years later it's, you know, it's an immense beast going nowhere. What, what, why does that happen? And he says it's a really profound problem the greatest theologians that we've had through church history, why do we not know their children and grandchildren? So where, where are Calvin's children? I mean, literally physical children. Where, where are the descendants? Jonathan Edwards uh, in America, one of the greatest, America's greatest theologian. Where are his children? Douglas Jones says. In other words, he might have been amazing and written the most incredible books, but where is the culture that he formed. Why, why, why is there not a movement um, stretching back hundreds of years of family line tracing themselves all the way back? Douglas Jones says it is because Christian cultures have failed throughout church, church history, not because of theological education, not because of poor doctrine, not because of inadequate evangelism, not because of weak leadership. Christian cultures fail because of lack of joy. Lack of joy is what causes barrenness to set in, but both physically in terms of homes and families, educationally in the way that we teach theology, evangelistically. If there is no joy at the heart of it, we have missed something essential. So here's the next quote, if you put that up now. Um, here's, here's what Douglas Jones says. The broad Christian community has many, many books on joy, but few of them appear to grasp the weight of joy. They tend to talk, talk rather stoically about how to feel pleasure in the midst of dysfunctional relationships. Joy is just a marginal psychological trait, not the center of the universe. How is it that for centuries, Christendom can write creeds and theological tomes that do not tell us this simple point from Deuteronomy? If you are not joyful serving the Lord with gladness and abundance, you will be cursed and turfed out of the land. Why have we not had giant church councils on the nature of joy? Why have we not had different schools of thought that wrestle over the intricacies of joy? Why do our creeds not dedicate long sections to expositing the nature of joy for the people of God? I think that is a really beautiful point. Creeds, councils, confessions, the Reformation. He, he's saying, look, joy is so central to the Bible. Why have we not been fighting for it or over it? We fight over everything else in church history. What, why not over joy? What does that say about us that we haven't grasped how significant it is to, to, to wrestle with it more and more? So here, here, here's, the, here's the key thing then, okay? If that's, if that's what Ecclesiastes tells us to do, tells us to rejoice, go back to chapter 11, verse 9, tells us to rejoice, tells us to let our heart cheer us, tells us to walk in the ways of our heart and the sight of our eyes. What, what does that actually look like? What does it actually mean? Okay, how do you get joy then? So remember the wording of my first point, pursue joy in gratitude. This kind of rejoicing in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9, the heart being cheerful, walking in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, the message of Ecclesiastes is that that kind of joy and cheer comes from simply being grateful to God. What does Deuteronomy say? For the abundance of all things that you see then flipped into reverse in the curse and in exile of food, clothing, relationships taken away. So what I want us to do now is go to, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And before we get to pursue joy in relationship, I want to show you a bit more on joy and gratitude Life and relationship and joy and gratitude, they're, they're, they're intermeshed here. And they're intermeshed specifically in chapter 9. 
Um, so let me read this for us as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, um, and I'm going to read down to verse, verse 10 of this chapter. But all of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. So here, here is death, okay? Last week. There is one thing in life that is certain, only one, death. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who goes to church, who sacrifices, and to him who never darkens a church door, who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. Both die. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event the same NIV says the same destiny happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The one thing in life that is certain, death. So what difference should that make? Verse seven, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Now, pursue joy in gratitude for the simple things in life. Look at verse seven, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. I think the message of Ecclesiastes is that when you look at death, my, my death, and again, really important to remember this, the death of our loved ones, Ecclesiastes does help with that in a measure, but it's not really the focus of the book. It's that the death of our loved one takes on an extra complexity and a different kind of sorrow in our lives. My death, me, me thinking about me not living forever. When I, when I see that, Ecclesiastes says, like chapter 11, here chapter 9, it has the power to loosen my grip on life. And it loosens my grip on the gifts that God gives as if those things were ever mine by right to have and to hold forever. And instead of holding these things with iron fists, it, it frees me to see his world for what it is. This world in which we live is the lavish endowment by God to wayward creatures of abundant things that we do not deserve. That's the message of Deuteronomy. If you read it all the way through, Moses is preaching to the people of Israel, standing on the edge of the promised land. It, it, it's the promised land. It is not the earned land. When you enter it, Moses keeps telling the people, you need to remember you are not here because of your righteousness. You are not here because you deserve this. You are here sheerly out of God's good grace and favor. And because you've been lavished with fig trees and vineyards and wives and children and health and sunlight and water and food and milk and honey, all of these things, because you've been lavished with them, serve God joyfully and gladly. And Ecclesiastes is, is a kind of meditation on that. What happens when you stop doing that? You start living, chapter one, verse three, for gain. You start living to build your own personal empire. But it is death that stops us doing that. Death frees us to enjoy things for what they are. It, it helps us to see that creation is there to be enjoyed and lingered over, not plundered for my gain, 
or manipulated for my fame. So food and drink, love and sex, work and beauty, actually these things become more enjoyable when we put them into our lives knowing that one day they will pass. That's the difference that it makes. You see, for some people, food, drink, work, sex, it is all there is. They, they, they hold on to those things to give them ultimate meaning, ultimate happiness, because there's nothing else. But actually, if you know that all of those things will one day be gone and that the food on my table is not a divine right and that one day I may not be able to eat, one day this kind of eating will be gone, then actually you begin to enjoy these things as gifts. But what happens is we, we paint them into our lives without worshipping them, without expecting too much from them. Here's two, here's two slides. C.S. Lewis, I think, saw this really beautifully. Um, there's a lovely, amazing little bit. C.S. Lewis, is, he, he knows exactly what he's doing in almost every little cameo in, in um, the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a lovely bit where... Aslan is on the move and the White Witch is on the move. They're sort of heading towards their conflict. But because Aslan is moving, um, winter is receding. You know, in, in the line, the Witch and Wardrobe, it is always winter, never Christmas. And as winter is receding, all the animals are coming out of their hibernation. And the White Witch, on her, her moving through Narnia, comes across this group of animals having a massive feast, a sort of luxurious picnic. And she says to these animals, what is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? It's a beautiful picture of what life with Aslan is like. We think life with God is strict. Life with God is don't taste, don't touch, don't have. C.S. Lewis is saying, no, it's the white witch is the one who's saying don't taste, don't touch. That's the message of the New Testament, isn't it? Paul's constantly saying, you want, to know, you want to know if someone is going off the rails theologically? They are anti-sex, anti-marriage. They control what you eat. They control your diary. They control all the physical things to do with the body as if those things are intrinsically wrong and evil. But God is the opposite. God is, God is as Aslan is marching, moving towards his great triumph of laying, laying down his life, what is he doing? Letting people eat and drink and celebrate. Somebody has said that in the Gospels, and here again I think is how C.S. Lewis is so profound, uh, it's a, a theologian at Cambridge, David Ford, has said that in the Gospels, Jesus literally eats his way through the Gospels. In other words, he is always, in, in the Gospels, he's either on his way to a meal or coming from a meal. So marching to his life-giving death in Jerusalem, what is Jesus doing all the way there, eating and drinking? And, and why is he doing that? It's because the great messianic promises were the promises of a banquet at the end of time. And who gets invited to the banquet? Not the people who have the law and who are keeping it outwardly, who are ticking all the boxes, but have long ago forgotten serving God with joy. Jesus is the one that ends up, ends up getting labelled as a drunkard and um, you know, the exact opposite of what people are expecting him to do. So I think C.S. Lewis just, just nails this beautifully in this one little line, and then the White Witch turns them all to stone and off she goes. But it's a, it's a sign of what God loves and what the world should be like. It shouldn't be winter. It should be spring. There should be food on the table. Here's the next one. C.S. Lewis again, this time in the Screwtape Letters. Um, the senior devil writing to the junior devil. This is a description of what God is really like. He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. Okay, that's what we associate with Christian faith, isn't it? Fasting, vigils, crosses, death, uh, Lent, ash. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without him minding in the least. 
Now, that is the message of Ecclesiastes. God has made a world for us to enjoy and no amount of sin, no amount of brokenness in the world makes the goodness of creation no longer still good, at least in its original essence. Of course, we know that everything has gone wrong and every good bit of creation has been twisted and abused and distorted but it doesn't stop it being good in the way that God intended. And Christian people should be the most, well, I want to say this carefully because this can be misunderstood depending on how we use the word world, but I think Ecclesiastes says we should be the most world-affirming people. I don't mean world in the way that the Apostle John uses the word world. He often uses it to refer to um you know, do, do not love the world or anything in the world. He's using the word world there to refer to the badness of the world. Everything that is bad in the world, of course, you should not love. But it's not the only way the Bible describes the world, is it? Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine, let your garments be white, enjoy life with your wife. And the message of Ecclesiastes is that the simple things in life that I take for granted every single day are an amazing gift from God that if I stop and take the time to celebrate and to enjoy can be immensely life-giving. Many of us know, without knowing you, many of us know that some of our happiest memories are around a table with people who we love. Um, some of our worst memories can be around a table as well. Some of our ugliest words can be spoken there, tears shed, um, in our families, but we all know that some of the best things that have ever happened to us, the most beautiful experiences, are wedding, meals, um, unexpected happiness that creeps up on you on a long evening with friends around a table, conversation into the night. Ecclesiastes is saying, yeah, when that, when, that, when that happens, you're kind of touching the very point of everything. What, what, what is heaven going to be like? A, a banquet? the marriage supper of the lamb, food, wine, relationship, people. And if you know that this physical time on earth will come to an end one day, you, you, you sure begin to make those moments count for more. And the gifts that you take for granted day by day, you begin to see God's hand in them and God's goodness in them. So learn to live by preparing to die. Number one, by pursuing joy and gratitude. And closely connected to that is number two, pursuing joy in relationships. So I'm going to stop here. The second one, like I promise, is much briefer. Uh, I'm going to go through it more quickly. But they, they, they mesh together, joy and gratitude and joy in relationship. They're both here in chapter nine. We're going to pick that up again in just a moment. But we'll, let's do the second point. You don't need to put anything up on the screen just yet, Jerry. But the second point, um, I've only got one slide left. So the end is in sight. And I've I can promise you we will finish with time for questions. So uh, the second point was pursue life in relationship, pursue joy and gratitude and pursue life in relationship. Okay. So the life in relationship is also there in Ecclesiastes chapter nine. Look at, look at what comes after eating your bread, let your garments be white. Verse nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. Now, it's not saying you have to have a wife to have life in relationship. His point is, if you have a wife, if you have a husband, if you're in this sort of relationship, make sure you're enjoying life with them. Um, I, I don't think we're very good at speaking about that. As it, You know, we, we want our marriages to be godly. We want our marriages to be sacrificial holy we, we use all the other ways the bible talks about um talks about marriage without with, without realizing that again here is a command to enjoy life with your wife so if you are surviving life with your wife or more seriously what happens in marriage is kind of you, you over time using each other to get from each other the kind of things that you use to further your own enterprises while actually ignoring and neglecting the person that God has given you while you're building your own empire with their unknowing help. That, that's an abuse of what life should be. It's meant to be enjoyment. 
if you don't have time to enjoy your married life, Ecclesiastes says, then you are too busy. E end of story. Now, none of that has also, Ecclesiastes knows all about the mess and complexity of life. It knows that there's illness. It knows that there's um, children, there's sleepless nights. There's all the things that make life messy and complicated and no no marriage journey is exclusive enjoyment is it at all so um it's it's not an absolute you know this is the only thing you must do it, 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 it's setting the tone nevertheless for what life should be like now put put them all together eat your bread drink your wine garments in white let not oil be lacking on your head. Remember how all of those things are there in Deuteronomy, the opposite of the curse. Hunger, thirst, you will be naked. And instead of oil on your head, there will be an iron bar crushing down on your neck. If you are not actually building your life in such a way that you are saying to the world and to, your, to the people around you, if you're not doing life in such a way that you're saying, all of these good things are here to be enjoyed, then you're not doing life properly. You're not joining joining the dots up properly. Where where do all these things come from? Eating, drinking, loving. Remember in the, the session when I looked at Tremper Longman saying that all these things are just, they're mere surface gifts. They're not the deepest gifts. But actually, I want to say, no, these things are the very best that life has to offer. And they're all there in the garden. They're what Adam and Eve were told to do. Fill the earth, sub subdue the earth, make the world like the garden, be fruitful and multiply. You may eat from every tree apart from this one. So abundance is there. And Adam and Eve reversed it. Didn't they remember that amazing quote from Derek Kidner that the nerve the serpent, serpent touched was to make even paradise appear an insult. And it's such an amazing quote because every day we live, where we are not grateful for the little, well, we, we call them little, we are not grateful for the gifts that God has given. We are effectively saying to God, this is an insult, what you've given me. Ecclesiastes says, you should put your head on your pillow at night. But if you are a young person, your head on your pillow at night in amazement of what God gave you that day. And if you have that kind of amazement, I had food, I had someone to speak to, I had clothing, warmth, provision. We all know, I think, don't we, the difference that kind of gratitude can make to our own hearts, never mind the overflow and the spill out to other people around us. Now, I think verse 9, verse 7 to 9, what I, verses 7 to 9 of chapter 9, what I say in the book is that this is not, a, this is not an exhaustive list. That's not how Ecclesiastes works. It's not saying... Here's how to enjoy life. Just these things. It, it's a representative list. Okay. It's showing us the substance of simple things done well that bring massive enjoyment, massive happiness. Here, here's my own attempt to expand the representative nature of this. Okay. This is in Destiny, but I put the code up here in the, on the screen. You, you, you can decide whether this gets it right. I think this goes with the flow of Ecclesiastes, okay, these verses. Eat your bread, be dressed in white, drink your wine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love, ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, go to the theatre, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until it makes you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, ring your parents, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plant a church, start a school, speak about Christ, travel somewhere where you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune and then some, and shape someone else's life by laying down your own. A representative list, not an exhaustive list. In other words, you don't have to go and do all those things. And they're just the tip of the iceberg. You, you should be able to add in, in your particular circumstances tonight, what can I do that shows I am alive while I am still alive and that lets me live in this broken but still beautiful good world while I can? That, that's the point of Ecclesiastes. 
all of these things on your screen in my representative list are godly things to do. And they are godly things to do because they are created physical things to do that God has given. And we must not reduce the Christian life to spiritual spiritualisms while our physical life in the world carries on at pace, sort of detached from it. In Douglas Jones's thing about joy, we will not build Christian cultures that are compelling to the world if there is not deep joy at the heart of it and a deep love of life and the good things that God has given. So th th there's the kind of essence of joy in relationship, pers uh, pursue life in relationship. I want to just look very briefly at one other uh, passage, Ecclesiastes chapter four. Let's look at this because particularly if you're single, you might think, well, this is all a sort of picture, of, you know, happy married life. Um, it's not really the way Ecclesiastes works. It just He's just happening to use that example of marriage there. But look at Ecclesiastes chapter four. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Remember, Tremper Longman says that this cannot be the voice of a believer. It's too bleak, too difficult. And we, I want to say, no, it's real, isn't it? What world are you living in? If you live in this world, then, you know, and I've, I've literally heard people say this, that so-and-so died just before lockdown began and people say and i'm i'm glad i'm glad they were away before they saw what we've had to to go through and you, you you know what they mean don't they that's verse two and yet suffering can be so bad that some people can end up saying well imagine not even being born yet and not knowing anything about this there's a there's a comfort in that imagine being spared all of this that that comes from a hard, long look at reality, cold, stark death. OK, then verse four, I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, what is the greatest command in the Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So relationship to God and then relationship to neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool or the, the lazy person, the idle person, folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. In verses five and six, what you have is two different extremes. You have the lazy person and you have the workaholic striving for two hands, striving after the wind. And better than either of those things is a handful of quietness. So one hand full with contentment, not two hands striving, and neither, no hands, the lazy person folding his hands. You see the way hands are used? The two extremes, nothing in your hands at all, both hands full. No, the right way is one hand. It's a beautiful image, verse five. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Um, you know, you, you, it's not, you've never literally seen a lazy person eat their own flesh. That's not, that's not what he means. But you have seen, and I have seen, lazy people er erode their own self-worth. They, they begin to become shells because they're, they're, get, they're not getting up till midday. Their body clock's all out of sync. There's no food in the cupboard. And as a, as a person, there's just less and less and less of them. And you know the you know the um, there's the famous saying, isn't there, that nobody on their deathbed wishes that they had spent more time in the office. That's that's verse six, isn't it? But verse five is Ecclesiastes says, yes, that's true. But there are some people on their deathbed who should have spent at least some time in the office. So instead of these two extremes, take the middle in between path, okay. And the middle in-between path is relational. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end 
to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. It's the fat cat at the top of the tree eating alone in the restaurant with nobody to share it with. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Again, it is not exhaustive. It's representative. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. Four might be better than three. Nothing wrong with being rich and making money. If you want to make money, go at it with all your heart. And Ecclesiastes just says, don't do it alone. Have a business partner. You might make even more money. You'll have somebody to share it with. That The whole outward focus here you see is not looking at my neighbor, verse 4, to envy them and to take from them, but looking at the world with other people to, to be able to give to them. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Again, quite famous verses, aren't they? Kind of enigmatic. Not, no one's really too sure what they, what they mean. They might come from um, the shipping world, sending stuff out on water. The best, the best interpretation I've heard is somebody, somebody saying, you know that, you know that some people say the the. The, the sort of standard motto in life is the future is uncertain, so eat dessert first. In other words, um, you know, why bother saving and saving, squirreling away £100, £200, whatever, £1,000 a month, whatever you can save. Why bother doing all that? You, you, might, you might be dead in, in a few years. Just eat dessert first. <laughs> you know, enjoy it while you can. The radical message of Ecclesiastes is the same message as the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. Somebody has said the best reading of chapter 11, verse 1, instead of saying the future is uncertain, so eat dessert first, the message of Ecclesiastes is the future is uncertain. That's very clear in Ecclesiastes. The future is uncertain, so give your dessert away. And I think that is really beautiful. That, that, that at least is what's going on in 11, 1 and 2, isn't it? Give, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Seven, the number of perfection and go beyond that to, to, to eight. It's like us saying today, give and give to the nth degree and giving away what you have to others. Ecclesiastes says is, is the path to life. It's, it's how the world was meant to be. Eden was meant to overflow to the world, this place of bounty and beauty. And what have we done? We've Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve twisted in on ourselves envying, destroying. I'm going to build bigger and bigger barns for myself, that parable of the rich man, the fool, um, the, the, the parable that Jesus tells. The, the key word in the story is myself, me, me, me. And the gospel does the exact opposite, doesn't it? We were looking at it in, in house group last week, Paul giving the example of the Macedonian churches giving above and beyond what anybody expected and giving above and beyond in their poverty and in their affliction. Uh, it, it's, so, it's so Old Testament, it's so wisdom literature, it's so, it's so there, is, there is real life in relationship with other people and in giving of yourself. So that I think is how Ecclesiastes works. Joy and gratitude and life in relationship. And if you, if you now read Ecclesiastes from start to end, I think you will see, hopefully with this framework, you will see all of those things, those two things running through it. The famous passage in chapter three, there's a time for everything, remember? Look at that list of the time that there is, the seasons, and they're all relational. They all involve other people. They all involve the pain and heartache that comes from the ebb and flow of life in and out of relationship with people that's where joy is fine that's where our pain is fine but it's where life and happiness is fine let me finish by going back to james russell miller and uh, just giving you a little bit of what he says and then i'm going to stop i'll be done in a couple of minutes and we'll take questions here he, 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 
th this long quotation, let me pick it up. He says this, it is worth our while then to think a little how to make sure of a happy old age. Now he gives a number of, a number of things we can do to live a happy old age. Number one, we must live a useful life. Nothing good ever comes out of idleness or out of selfishness. Ecclesiastes chapter four. The standing water stagnates and breeds decay and death. It is the running stream that keeps pure and sweet. The fruit of an idle life is never joy and peace. Years lived selfishly never become garden spots in the field of memory. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? You never sit down at age 70, age 80, 90 in your nursing home and remember the selfish years. In your mind, you don't enter an orchard, do you? All those things that you did for yourself. Happiness comes out of self-denial for the good of others. Sweet are the memories of good deeds done and sacrifices made. Their incense, like heavenly perfume, comes floating up from the fields of toil and fills old age with holy fragrance. You see, the, see what he's... I have no idea whether James Russell Miller was basing this letter on Ecclesiastes, but he's got Ecclesiastes exactly right. That you're going to sit in a house of old age and what you plant now today will be what you harvest later on. When one has lived to bless others, one has many grateful, loving friends whose affection proves a wondrous source of joy when the days of feebleness come. Oh, it is Ecclesiastes. Look, bread cast upon waters is found again after many days. I see some people who do not seem to want to make friends. They are unsocial, unsympathetic, cold, distant, disobliging. If my wife was here, she'd be raising her eyebrow at me reading this out. Others, again, make no effort to retain their friends. Oh, she'd raise the other eyebrow. They cast them away for the slightest cause, but they are robbing their later years of joys they cannot afford to lose. It's true, isn't it? If we would walk in the warmth of friendship's beams in the late evening time, we must seek to make ourselves loyal and faithful friends in the hours that come. This we can do by a ministry of kindness and self-forgetfulness. This was at least part of what our Lord meant in that council, which falls so strangely on our ears. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. Again, here's another one. Again, we must live a pure and holy life. So look, look what James Russell Miller is doing. You want to live a happy old age. Don't be idle. Be, be, be useful. Don't be unfriendly, unsociable. Thirdly, don't be impure. Everyone carries in himself the sources of his own happiness or wretchedness. Circumstances have very little to do with our inner experiences. A happy heart sees rainbows and brilliance everywhere, even in darkest clouds. Sinful years put thorns in the pillow on which the head of old age rests. Isn't that incredible? Sinful years put thorns in the pillow on which the head of old age rests. Lives of passion and evil store away bitter fountains from which the old man has to drink. Sin may seem pleasant to us now, but we must not forget how it will appear when we get past it and turn to look back at it. Here's the ending, summing it all up in one. And here's my ending to Ecclesiastes for you friends as we, we listen to this, as we finish this together. Only Christ can make any life, young or old, truly beautiful or truly happy. Only Christ can cure the heart's restless fever and give quietness and calmness. Only he can purify the sinful fountain within us, our corrupt nature, and make us holy. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live it with Christ. Such a life grows brighter even to its close. Its last days are the sunniest and sweetest. The more earth's joys fail, the nearer and more satisfying do the comforts become. The nests over which the wing of God droops, which in the bright summer days of prosperous strength lay hidden among the leaves, stand out uncovered in the days of decay and feebleness when the winter has stripped the branches bare. But for such a life, death has no terrors. The tokens of its approach are but the land birds lighting on the shrouds, telling the weary mariner that he is nearing the haven. The end is but the touching of the weather-beaten keel on the shore of glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your living word there are treasures and depths 
so great for all of us, whatever stage of life we are at. We are always together discovering new things. I want to thank you for the precious people listening. You know every one of their lives and stories. You know the uh, pain that has been written into chapters of their lives, the joy that some are living with and the hope and optimism of the future or the despair and fear that seems to be crowding in. And so please would you draw near to us through your word this evening. We pray that there would be uh, repentance for the past where it is needed and help us to bring our regrets to you. Help us to bring our hopes and plans and dreams and to lay them at your feet and in doing so to lay hold of life, life with you, Lord Jesus, our King. You think of the relationships in our churches also frustrated at the minute, so stunted, and the lack of food and drink and touch and welcome, hospitality. In your mercy, Lord, give us these things again one day, we pray. And as we begin to emerge from this time of pandemic in the months ahead, help us, uh, perhaps for the first time, to build new relationships, new habits, new patterns that lay hold of life. Uh, with immense gratitude to you, we, we will see freshly how much you have given, how much we took for granted. And may the gospel and may your living word be at the very heart of our new eyes as we look at the world afresh. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.